0: Welcome to Hope, everybody, and a special welcome to those of you who are maybe new to Hope or newer to Hope. I was new to Hope in November of 2006. Our family moved to Ankeny. Uh, from Buffalo, Iowa, where I had been pastoring for about five years at a church that was 85 years old. And on a good Sunday morning, we had 40 people show up for worship. Uh, My first staff meeting at Hope, we had more people at the staff meeting than we had at a worship service at my old church. And I don't say that to talk about how big Hope is. We don't think uh, bigger is better. We also don't think smaller is better. We think better is better. I simply say that to say that first year, I was a little overwhelmed uh, when I was here at Hope. And maybe for some of you who are new to Hope, you get the overwhelming feeling every once in a while as well. And I would find myself just kind of shaking my head and wondering, how did I end up here exactly? So three months after we arrived at Hope, it was the beginning of the season of Lent, the 40 days leading up to Easter. And every year at Hope during the season of Lent, we have a mission project. That year, the mission project (laughs) was called Feed a Million in 40 Days. Some of you were around for that. When I heard about the plans for this project, I thought, this is ridiculous. They took an old semi-trailer, remodeled it, and turned it into a food packaging center, put it in the parking lot at the West Des Moines campus, and then small groups and families and ministry teams could sign up for a one-hour shift To package meals in that trailer. And the hope was over the 40 days of Lent, we would be able to package enough to feed a million people. Impossible, right? Well, we did it. And in fact, we surpassed the goal. And some people got so excited about the potential of that ministry, they started an organization completely separate from Hope. It's one of our mission partners, Meals from the Heartland. And over the last decade, they've been packaging meals and people from schools and businesses and churches show up uh, every year. They have an an annual hunger fight uh, right around the Labor Day weekend, so that's coming up if you'd like to help volunteer with that. A couple of years ago, uh, I went to South Africa, part of Mission South Africa, and one of the things uh, we helped do was lead an after-school program in the city of Mokopane. And students would come to that after-school program, uh, they'd get uh, educational support, they'd get life skills training, and there was also a meal component to that for many of the kids who came to that program that was the only meal consistent meal that they could count on uh, throughout the day uh, every week of their life and so part of that food came from food that we packaged here in Iowa through Meals for the Heartland really kinda cool to see that Full circle reality of that ministry. Last winter, Eli Sudarth, our discipleship minister here at Hope Ankeny, he was in South Africa when the 100 millionth meal uh, was eaten. Uh, And so there's a picture of the the student in South Africa who, who received that meal. Think about that 100 million meals. It's unbelievable. So, uh, today, part of what we want to do is package meals uh, during the service. We've been doing it at each service so far, and so I'm going to need four or five volunteers. Eli knows how to do it, and so he's going to need four. So if you volunteer, the cool thing is you don't really have to pay attention to the sermon. So I see that hand. Come on up. How you doing, buddy? Now the last, the last service, 8 o'clock. I seriously need four or five volunteers. Don't rush all at once, but somebody needs to come up and help Eli. He's all alone. Yeah, You don't need to raise your hand. Just rush the stage. Come on, people. There you go. Perfect. Yeah, keep on coming. That's great. We got enough now. Um, You missed your opportunity, and we will talk about responding to God's nudge later on in the service, so um, not to put any guilt on you. So that's... That Lenten season 2007, I was new to hope, and it it felt like the word God was kind of putting on my heart and and planting in my mind was the word impact. I could not believe that we were able to feed a million people in 40 days. And I thought, if if we could do that, then what else might God use this church to accomplish uh, in this world and and for the sake of the glory of God and, and the kingdom of God? And so I think a lot of people want to live lives of impact. Evan Baxter uh, wants to live a life of impact. He runs for political office and his slogan is, we're going to change the world. I really think a lot of us, we we want to live lives of meaning and purpose, lives that leave an impact even after our time on this earth. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're continuing a message series called Hope for Iowa. And today we're going to be talking about how do we be hope for our cities? hope for our cities. I was not born in a city uh, like John Cougar Mellencamp. I was born in a small town. And so, so were, I know, you guys like 80s music. So were most of the people in this congregation. Uh, even if you were born and raised in Ankeny, grew up here, it was a much smaller town 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, whenever it was you were growing up. So um, I want to I watch this video because our, our community is growing. Uh, whatever community you are a part of, I'm guessing it's growing. Central Iowa is growing. I want to watch a video that talks about the rise of something called mega cities? Hope is sometimes called a mega church, and there's all sorts of connotations to that phrase, mega church. All a mega church simply means is 2,000 or more people showing up for worship every week. That's a mega church. A mega city is a city with a population of 10 million people or more. 34 mega cities in the world currently. But as they project into the future, the next 20 years, 25 years, by the time we get to uh, the year 2050, there's gonna be a lot more megacities and it's gonna have a significant impact on how we live our life. So take a look.
1: The biggest cities of the future are places you might not expect. Lagos, Nigeria is already home to more than 17 million people and growing about 50% every decade. By 2050, it'll likely at least double in size, rivaling Tokyo. China is already home to four megacities, including Shenzhen, the manufacturing capital. In 1979, when it was only a fishing village, Shenzhen had fewer than 30,000 people. Today, it has a population of more than 15 million. And by 2050, it could be home to more than 50 million. Then, there's Karachi, Pakistan, which takes population growth to a whole new level. This megacity, with 15,500 people per square mile, is the third most dense in the world behind Dhaka and Mumbai. It's already home to more than 23 million people, but as it creaks under the weight of massive migration and a growing average household size, some estimates say it'll have more than 53 million people by 2050. That's bigger than all of present-day South Korea. How do these cities get so big so fast? Well, they tend to have rural areas nearby and people leave those areas to earn more in the city. What we consider individual cities today could merge into single sprawling megacities in the future. Shenzhen could join with Hong Kong and Guangzhou to become one enormous city with a population of 120 million people. That would make that single city the same size as present-day Mexico and larger than all but 11 countries today. So, what will life be like in these places? Well, on the one hand, there's tremendous opportunity. The top 25 megacities already account for more than half the world's wealth, but research suggests that the bigger the city, the more unequal life is there. Megacities will likely reward the rich and educated while punishing the poor with higher rates of segregation, crime, and health issues. By 2050, it's estimated that 7 in 10 of us will be living in one of these megacities. The question is, at which end of the spectrum will you be?
0: In the summer of 1998, I was a youth pastor at a church in Des Moines, and uh, we partnered our youth group with a church here in Ankeny and we went to New York City on a mission trip with some high school students. Uh, We were in kind of midtown Manhattan, West 57th Street at a a church there, pretty close to the Hell's Kitchen neighborhood uh, of New York City. And uh, the church had been around, it was a small church, but it had been around for a long time. It was pastored by the Reverend Dr. Robert Helm, and he had been the pastor for decades there. And every day during the course of our mission trip, Uh, Dr. Bob would lead us in devotions. And so pretty early on in the week, he opened up the Bible to Revelation chapter 21. Uh, The book of Revelation is this vision that the apostle John is given of what heaven might be like. And so Dr. Bob started to read to us from Revelation chapter 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared and the sea was also gone And I saw the holy city, the New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. God's home is going to be with God's people. God Himself will be with them. He'll wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death, or sorrow, or crying, or pain. All these things are gone forever heaven's going to be this awesome place. And as Dr. Bob continued to read about it, he he was reading about this description of a city and city walls and city gates and streets that are paved with gold. And he ends up in verse 23. Uh, Revelation 21, 23 was our theme verse for the last day of Vacation Bible School uh, just a month ago here at Hope. Uh, Let's read this verse out loud together. The city has no need of sun or moon for the glory of God illuminates the city. And the Lamb is its light. So Dr. Bob closed his Bible and he looked at this group of kind of small-town Iowans, a little wide-eyed from our experience in the big city. He says, I don't know if you've ever thought about this or not, but one of the primary descriptions or images or metaphors that the biblical writers use when they're talking about what will heaven be like, they use this image of a city. Like God's hope. Uh, God's dream God's great desire is that one day we'll all figure out how to live together people from every tribe every nation every color every race every language living together in close proximity and it will be a really 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 good thing in fact it'll be the best thing it'll be heaven Now, I think we spend a lot of time in our lives waiting for heaven, but one of the reasons I'm a follower of Jesus is I believe him. When he teaches us how to pray in the Lord's Prayer, he says, pray this way, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Like Part of what Jesus wants us to believe is as we follow after Jesus, as we shape our lives around his life, we can start to get glimpses of heaven on earth. And it will not be perfect and it will not last forever, not until Jesus comes again, but we can start to get a picture of it. We can get glimpses of it. We can experience heaven on earth as we live together as as the church. And imagine as we follow after Jesus, all the ways that that will change us, all the ways that will transform us, the ways we think about ourselves and others and interact uh, with others, it's all going to change. I mean, what, what do you need to change? What does God need to change in your life? What, what if God changed you? What if God changed me? What if God changed us? First person, plural pronoun. In this transformed community of followers of Jesus Christ, what kind of an impact might we have on the communities that we are a part of? I'm absolutely convinced God can use a, a community of transformed individuals to change the world. To change our city. And I think sometimes one of the challenges when you're talking about what do we need to change in our cities is most of us think, man, we're living in pretty good cities. The communities that we are a part of, these are, these are great communities and they are, wow, but they're not perfect. Uh, early on in my time at Hope, part of the Ankeny Ministerial Association and they built the new uh, police station. And so we got to go have a tour, many of the pastors in town, a tour of the new police station. And we got to talk to the police chief. And one of the questions we asked was, What's the biggest issue? What's the biggest problem that you face as uh, police officers, as a police department in the city of Ankeny? And right away, no no question, statistics to back it up, our biggest problem is violence against women. Our biggest problem is violence against women in this community where we live. Have you been paying attention to the news this week? Things that are going on in college football, things that are going on in small-town Iowa, violence against women? big problem major problem and when we start thinking about how do we live a life of impact how do we make a difference in our world how do we shine how do we be the light that jesus wants us to be i think sometimes we can look at the darkness of this world and the problems of this world and and we can think they're so big and they're so great and what can little old me do to make a difference to make any kind of an impact and sometimes we stop before we even get started That's what's going on with Evan Baxter in this movie, Evan Almighty. Uh, He wants to change the world, but he doesn't know where to start. And so God shows up. And God gives Evan a little nudge. Take a look. Early on, it could be very costly, because instead of punting from deep in their own territory, they're already at the midfield right now.
1: Yeah, and that's just that quick throw. Again, it's not a three-step
2: drop. You just... Dad, what are you doing? I'm watching this. Genesis 6.14. Gen 614 Joan, do we have a Bible anywhere? Genesis 614 Make thee an ark of gopher wood Gopher wood?
1: Gopherwood. wood. Get it? God. Well, it's not really gopher wood. I just like the word play. No, it's pine and maple. It was clear cut from this valley to make room for all those houses. Excuse me, do I know you? Not as well as I'd like. I see you got my housewarming gift.
2: That was you? You sent those? What are they for? Hey.
1: Genesis chapter 6, verse 14.
2: I want you to build an ark. You want me to build an ark? Yes. So that's why the tools. And you are responsible for the wood. Uh-huh. All right. Well, uh, let's just start over. <clears throat> Hello. I am Evan, Evan Baxter. Baxter. Yeah?
1: Born June fifteenth, nineteen sixty-two. Eight pounds eleven ounces. Mother's Carol Ann Parker. Father Eugene Evan Baxter.
2: Ooh. You have internet access. Very impressive. Do you also have cable?
1: You're a clean freak. You care much too much about your outward appearance. Your left nipple is a quarter of an inch higher than your right nipple. And when you were a little boy, you were afraid of Gumby. Who are you? I'm God. You're God. Yes. And I want you, Evan Baxter, to build a marker.
2: Okay, you know what? This conversation is a little thing I like to call over, but I gotta get going because frankly, I have an art to build. Busy, 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 busy. Nice meeting you. Take care. Oh, and... All right, see you later. Shake it off, Evan, it's over. That nutcase is gone. I am successful, I'm powerful, I'm handsome, I'm happy. Successful, powerful, handsome. Happy! A... <gasps>
1: oh! Cut it out, son. It's the beginning of wisdom.
2: How, <laughs> how did you get in here? Time, call the cops.
1: Oh, no, no need. Look, look, there's one right there. Right
2: there. Officer, officer, officer! Carjacker, carjacker the car! Carjacker oh. the
1: oh. Oh. Careful pulling out. Pedestrian in the crosswalk.
2: Oh. Oh. oh,
0: I want you to build an ark, God says to Evan, and if people ask you what you're doing, I want you to tell them the flood is coming. And then Evan starts to see God pretty much everywhere he looks. And I think that gets us to Matthew chapter 25. It's a story that Jesus is telling near the end of his, his ministry. It's a story where he's talking about what it's going to be like at the end, what it's going to be like when he comes again, what heaven's going to be like, what the city of God is going to be like. And it very much is connected to learning how to be people who see God everywhere we look. Matthew 25, verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered in his presence and he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. I grew up on a farm uh, just outside of a a small town. Uh, We went to church pretty much every weekend. I can remember growing up. I've heard this passage multiple, multiple times. This week I decided to just kind of look into, why the hate for the goats? What's going on here? Why, Why is Jesus using this imagery, sheep and goats? And it turns out it's actually a pretty simple explanation. Sheep are good at following Goats are not. Sheeps are good, sheeps, there you go. (laughs) School starting up, Uh, anyway. Sheep, sheep, that's both singular and plural. Sheep uh, are good at listening to the voice of their shepherd and goats not so much. And so part of what Jesus is talking about in this story is he's looking for people who want to listen to him and then follow Jesus, go whatever direction he's asking them to go. And you might think it would be really easy to distinguish between the sheep and the goats, right? But imagine you're on the hillsides of Galilee in the Judean wilderness, and it's rainy and it's muddy, and the sheep's wool is getting all matted down. All of a sudden, the sheep and the goats start to look pretty similar. How's a good shepherd going to discern which are the sheep and which are the goats? So part of what a good shepherd does is he examines the heart. Is this a creature who will have a heart that wants to follow me, or is this a creature who has a heart that wants to go its own way? Is this a creature that will enjoy lying down beside the clear waters and uh, the green pastures where the good shepherd leads them, or is this a creature who's going to constantly be butting against the direction of the shepherd? So what is the direction that Jesus, the good shepherd, is giving in Matthew 25 that the goats are not following? They're not loving the least of these. They're not feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, taking care of those who are sick, welcoming the stranger, visiting the prisoner. Great command is to love God with everything you have, love your neighbor as yourself. The apostle John who gets this vision that he writes down in Revelation, what what heaven is going to be like in another place in the New Testament, John writes, "How, how is it possible that you do not love people right in front of you, people that you can see, and yet you think you love God whom you cannot see. Over and over the scripture writers tell us there's this connection between loving God and loving people. And Jesus is kind of driving that point home in this story, this parable that he tells in Matthew 25. At the end of the parable, he says, when you did it to the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. When you fed the hungry, When you clothed the naked, when you visited those who are in prison, you were doing it to Jesus. And I think most of us in this room, we understand that idea. Uh, We're not opposed to that idea. There's not very many people, if we were to take a survey, who would say, I think it's a bad idea to feed people that are hungry. I think it's a bad idea to clothe the naked. We all understand that. But if, if we were to take an honest assessment of our life, the last week, the last month, the last year, how have we been doing loving the least of these? I think a lot of us in the room might get a little nervous. Maybe I'm not doing enough. Maybe I'm going to end up in a place what Jesus describes uh, later on in Matthew 25, verse uh, 45. If you go to the next slide, Jesus says, when you refused to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were refusing to help me. Now, we can play word games with this if we want to. And we can say, uh, look, I did not technically visit anyone in prison over the last 12 months. You're right but it's not like I was refusing to do that. Nobody asked me, and if someone had asked me, my response would not be, sorry, I refuse to do that. And you can play those kinds of games if you want, but I think that misses the point that Jesus is trying to make in Matthew 25. He's just asking us some pretty simple questions. How do you respond to the needs of the people around you? How do you respond to physical needs? People who need food and clothing and shelter. What's your response to people like that? what's your response to people with social needs are you doing everything you can to welcome the outsider or the stranger to include people who feel left out and don't have any hope how, how are you doing responding to people with medical needs who are in need of care and support and and all kinds of help along the way as they're dealing with whatever illness or disease they might be going through how do you respond to people with moral needs a criminal who feels like a complete failure and is in need of an undeserved touch of grace? How do you respond to the needs around you? And I think most of us, we know the answer is we're supposed to move in the direction of meeting those needs, helping people, serving people, loving people. And I think we we look around the world, it's not like we're ignorant of the needs, it's not like uh, we're ignoring the needs, we're like, I didn't know there was a need there. I think we're pretty aware of the needs. I I think sometimes what happens, God says to Evan in this movie, I want you to tell people a flood is coming. I think sometimes when when we start looking at the needs around us, it's like the flood of needs and problems is so overwhelming that it stops us before we even get started. How many times have you found yourself kind of thinking, I don't have the time, the energy, the patience, the resources, the love to take care of the problems all around me? I've got a job, I've got responsibilities, I've got a family. If I open my heart to start meeting the needs uh, uh, and fixing the problems all around me, it will absolutely overwhelm me. And if you've ever had that kind of thought, you're, you're right. But what does Jesus do? There are problems in Jesus' world. There are needs that people have in, in Jesus' day. And his command to us is to love the least of these. How do we do that? What, what stops us from doing it? Sometimes it seems the, the, the needs, the problems are too big. It's too overwhelming. So let's look to see what does Jesus do? How does he take on the needs in his day? How does he kind of meet those challenges in his day? So there's a fascinating story in John chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to John chapter 5. I think it is an important story to help us understand What does it mean to be people who make an impact in our world? I'm going to read through the story, and I just want you to kind of imagine in your mind's eye what the scene might have looked like. John 5, starting in verse 1. Afterward, Jesus returned to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish holy days. Inside the city near the sheep gate was the pool of Bethesda with five covered porches. Crowds of sick people, blind, lame, or paralyzed, lay on the porches. One of the men lying there had been sick for 38 years. When Jesus saw him and knew he had been ill for a long time, he asked him, would you like to get well? I can't, sir, the sick man said, for I have no one to put me in the pool when the water bubbles up. Someone else always gets there ahead of me. Jesus told him, stand up, pick up your mat and walk. Instantly, the man was healed. It's a pretty incredible story. Imagine what your response would have been if you had been there. Would have been cause for great joy, great celebration probably, right? Maybe. Maybe. Let's, let's look a little closer at this story and kind of, again, imagine what is going on here. We'll put two verses up on the screen, verse 3 and verse 5. It says, Crowds of sick people, blind, lame, or paralyzed, lay on the porches. One of the men lying there had been sick for 38 years. So the first question is, how many people are there who need to be healed? Yeah, I thought it was an easy question, actually. Crowds, yeah. Crowds of sick people in need of healing are there. The Greek word that gets translated crowds is more, most often translated multitudes. Multitudes. Does that mean it's more than 100, more than 500, more than 1,000? Who knows? I'm not sure it really matters. What if it had been two people who were there? How many people get healed? One. What are we supposed to do with this story? What's Jesus up to here? What's the lesson in this story? Do you think if you were part of the crowds of sick people who did not get healed, it would have been easy for you to celebrate the one who did get healed? I doubt it. Where's my healing? Where's the healing for my family member, for my friend? This was first pointed out to me by a pastor named Andy Stanley. He says, if you're really trying to envision what the scene must have been like, you almost have to imagine Jesus is kind of tiptoeing over people who are sick and in need of healing. And kind of moving around people who are blind and in need of healing in order to get to the one person that Jesus actually heals. He moves past person after person after person who has a need, who needs to be healed, and then he goes to only one person and heals him. What's the lesson? What are we supposed to be learning from this? Here's part of what we can learn. and I think, again, it's really important if you want to be a person who lives a life of impact. Jesus does not heal everyone who's in need of healing. Jesus does not feed every empty belly. Jesus does not embrace every soul that is lonely during his earthly ministry. And at the same time, Jesus refuses to allow the size of the need, like the size of the problem. He refuses to allow that to stop him or to prevent him from extending help and grace and support to a few. What are we supposed to make of this story? I like the way Andy Stanley kind of summarizes it. He says, do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. I can't do that. If I help this person, then I have to help everybody who has the same situation, right? And that wouldn't be fair if I helped just this one person, but I didn't help the multitudes of others. It's not how Jesus lived his life. Do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Go back to uh, Matthew chapter 25 in, in this story, this parable that Jesus tells The story in Matthew 25 of the sheep and the goats, it's not a story where Jesus says the expectation is that the church would eradicate from this world all hunger, all crime, all homelessness. That's not the point of the story. The point of the story in Matthew 25 is Jesus expects the church to become sheep, to become people who listen to the voice of our good shepherd. We become people who learn to tune into that still, small voice, that gentle whisper, the nudgings, uh, promptings that the Holy Spirit gives us. God's not going to ask you to fix all the problems in the world, but make no mistake about it, God will ask you to move in the direction of helping or serving or loving someone in your community. The question is, will you respond with faithful obedience? Uh, Friday at noon, this room was filled with hundreds of firefighters who were here for the funeral of an Ankeny member of the Ankeny Fire Department who died. And after uh, the funeral service here, there was a procession from the church to the cemetery, Iowa Veterans Cemetery in Van Meter. And I've seen processions like this on TV before, but I've never been a part of one, where the procession is led by you know, equipment from uh, the fire department and police department and uh, uh, sheriff's office and so it started pouring down rain right about the time the procession started we made our way down Ash Street to First Street went in front of the, the fire station there at every intersection uh, there were members of the fire department or uh, the police force or the sheriff's office standing at attention in the pouring rain saluting their fallen brother When we got on the interstate, every overpass, same thing. Flags waving, people standing at attention and saluting their fallen brother. I don't know when that tradition started. But it hasn't always been the case that that's what we do when someone in a public service area like that dies. But at some point, somebody had an idea and said, what can we do? to help people who are walking through the valley of the shadow of what can we do to show our love, to show our support, to show that they're not alone in this? And it developed into this really powerful and impactful kind of thing. There are a million needs that need to be met in this world. What is the one thing God is asking you to do? Evan Baxter wanted to change the world, but he didn't know where to start. And so God shows up, and part of what God says to him is, the world is changed through one act of random kindness at a time. world is changed through one act of random kindness at a time. Now, if you are like me, when you hear that or you see a scene like that, you just kind of roll your eyes and you're like, uh, that's cliche. Maybe it even sounds a little impotent. Where's the power in that? Changing the world requires power. If that's kind of your response, uh, maybe I wonder if it's because we've forgotten that kindness is one of the fruits of the Spirit. Jesus says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me, therefore go into all the world. He he says to his disciples, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will receive power and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. We're empowered by the Holy Spirit to be the church. We're empowered by the Holy Spirit to change the world. Historically, this is what happened, and this is what's going to continue to change the world generation after generation after generation. Even when 7 out of 10 of us are living in megacities, it's going to be the power of the Holy Spirit that makes a difference. The fruit of the Spirit. When you're living your life guided by the Holy Spirit, it'll produce fruit in your life. And the heart of the fruit of the Spirit is kindness. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The heart of the fruit of the Spirit is kindness. It's a song that we love to sing. We sang it a little earlier in the service, Reckless Love. Part of what we sing about is the kindness of God. You have been so, so kind to me. Paul writes about the kindness of God in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. Let's read this out loud together. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. Have you experienced that kindness and grace from God in your life? Do you believe it to be true? Have you asked God to give you that grace and that kindness when you find yourself beating yourself up over mistakes you have made, over, over, over sins in your past? What if you ask God to give you that kindness and grace and that filled you up so that you could start to share that kind of kindness and grace with the people around you? What if we ask God to open our eyes to show us the needs that need to be met, and then we ask God to give us the faith to actually meet those needs? Empowered by the Holy Spirit. Showing the kindness and grace of God to the world around us. What kind of an impact might it make if you as an individual did that? But then what kind of an impact might it make if we all did that together? That team that came up, we only have enough supplies for people to do 80 meals at a time. They did 80 meals in about 15 minutes. 80 meals in 15 minutes. together, what kind of impact can we make in this world? Evan Baxter is wanting to change the world God says build an ark and he does it he becomes the brunt of all kinds of jokes Uh, but eventually the reservoir the dam holding back a reservoir of water breaks and hundreds of people get onto that ark and they are saved and then Evan Baxter has a conversation with God about changing the world and making an impact take a look come on
2: buster no come on come on all right. No, that's fine. Thank you, Buster. I know, sweetie. All right. What do you say we take a little break? We've been walking for like five minutes now. Well, five on, five off. Life is about balance, right? Yeah. How about some sandwiches? Okay. Who wants sandwiches? Oh, Let's do it! I Everyone but Buster up. is going to get a sandwich. Oh. You do not get a sandwich. are dog and not going to get Buster is part of the family now. <laughs> You're just going to have to get used
0: to it. Oh, I go Honey,
2: sweetheart, be careful. Come here. Hey, hon, save me one, okay? Okay. I'll be right back. Hey. Hey. What are you doing here? Just hanging out with some old friends. You knew all along, didn't you? You knew the dam was unstable. That meant for the Ark, my family, the neighbors. I fought you every step of the way. Yes, but you did it. So you had nothing to do with the flood? Like where the Ark landed, exactly?
1: I gave you a little shove at the end. Sue me. (laughs) You did good, son. You changed the world. No, no, I didn't. Well, let's see. Spending time with your family, making them very happy. (laughs) gave that dog the home.
2: Right, so? So, how do we change the world? One act of random kindness at a time. One act of
0: random kindness. Wow. <laughs> Let's stand together. Uh, throughout church history, there have been Many faithful men and women who have taken serious this command of Jesus to love the least of these. One of the great examples is St. Francis of Assisi, Uh, radically uh, changed life because of his encounter uh, with the love and grace and kindness of Jesus. And he had a prayer that he would pray on a regular basis to remind him of this call, this challenge to love the least of these, the prayer of St. Francis. I'd like us to pray it together uh, as we close our service today. It's on the screen. Would you pray with me? O God, of the greatest and least of all people, make us instruments of your peace. Where there is hatred, let us sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is hunger, nourishment. Where there is loneliness, friendship. Where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that we may not seek so much to be consoled as to console to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in reaching out that we are held, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.